Welcome to Talking on Tap, ABM Bav's podcast series. I'm your host, Elaine McCrumman, Global Director of Reputation and External Engagement. This week, I'm bringing to you a conversation between Richard Oppie, Vice President of Global Brands, Spencer Gordon, Vice President of Digital and Draftline at Anheuser-Busch, and a very good friend of ABM Bav, Gary Vaynerchuk, Chairman of VaynerX and CEO of VaynerMedia entrepreneur, author, speaker, internet personality. If you're not following him on LinkedIn, you should be. They'll be sharing more about the NFTs, the metaverse, and what it means for the world of business. We're absolutely thrilled to have Gary V on the show. Coming right up, Gary V, Oppie and Spencer. Hello everyone. For those of you that don't know, my name is Richard Oppie. I work across the Global Brands team. And today I'm very excited to have a couple of very special guests with us to educate us on the metaverse, on the NFT space, and really pick their brains on how it's going to impact our business. So firstly, we've got here, we've got Spencer Gordon, who's the VP of Digital and Draftline from our US business. He also leads up our NFT business globally in close partnership with Avery and the Vayner NFT team. Just to call out to you, Spence, you've done a phenomenal job on getting this off the ground and also a big call out to the different functions that have helped us, like the legal team and finance, who have been fantastic. And obviously the other person we've got with us uh, doesn't need any introduction, but has been a long-term partner and good friend of ABI. And, you know, it's interesting. People ask me about you, Gary, and they say, what's Gary V really like? When you listen to you from a distance and consume your content, I wasn't sure if it was all a big act and it's just the, the Gary V brand. But to be honest, the more closely I've worked with you, the more I've been impressed. You're one of the most innovative guys that I've had the chance to work with and really been impressed how much you genuinely care about your people, care about your partnerships, and we really enjoy working with you. So thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for saying that. It means a lot to me coming from you. So guys, well, let's kick off and we'll go into a bit more detail on metaverse and blockchain technology, but I thought we'd just warm up and have a couple of questions I got for you, Gary, before we get into that space. First one I thought particularly the global brands team would find interesting is I've heard you talk a lot lately about kindness yes, and the, the importance of kindness in business. Now, for someone that works across global brands across the world, you know, there's often a lot of conflict. And, and what we try and do is drive consistency on brand positioning, consistency on creative tracks. And sometimes we can't afford to be kind or nice. And often we have to put the hammer down to drive consistency. And I was actually thinking when you were saying it the other day, and I thought, actually, I think sometimes it's easier to be kind than to be tough. And actually, well, I find I, in any roles, we have to almost be comfortable being unpopular. So I was interested in your thoughts on that. It's a great question. First of all, I think that as somebody who's been in the business now for 13 years, and a lot of people on this call have been on the global side and then the local side and the global side and the local side. First and foremost, all of you are put in an impossible position of two cooks in the kitchen. And I actually think if kindness is layered and includes or is cousins to things like empathy and compassion and thoughtfulness, well, then you get into a phenomenal conversation because when somebody comes from global and I'm in business deeply with four to five organizations that have a global, local paradigm that's very similar to yours, you know, you start thinking about being kind and empathetic. It's very nice that somebody from global wants you to follow this tagline or this color scheme 
or this energy that, oh, by the way, is subjective if we're talking about this is elevated or this is funny or this is self-deprecating. But you can imagine, and you got to know this and everybody listening knows this, when global in any scenario comes in and it's the era where global has to say, because the other thing that's been fascinating in just 13 short years, I've seen some of the biggest Fortune 50 companies ping pong multiple times already. Who actually has the say, the local market or the global market? But if I'm in global for Stella and I'm trying to get somebody in India to do something that I've got going global, but it's in the midst of the cricket world championships and they want to do something more contextual to their market, I actually think kindness and empathy is the only way I'm going to get them to do what I want. You know, I think that at the end of the day, we call VaynerX, because we have a global company, we call VaynerX the honey empire. You get more with honey than vinegar. Oh, by the way, we're trying to build an empire. So this isn't kumbaya. Let's be kind. And everything like, like, I'm a business assassin. I'm an assassin. But I just think that soft skills actually get my... And look, actually... Richard, I almost was a little more soft-spoken in me thanking you when you replied because I was very humbled. I'm very proud and I'm aware, self-awareness too, right? I'm aware that I'm a lot of energy. I put out a lot of content. I've got wild levels of conviction behind the things I believe in. So I have a lot of empathy for everybody here on Global trying to get Brazil on board or the US on board. I think that if you have power, you have responsibility. So if this organization, and I know this is the case in some brands more than others, has the say at the brand level, at the global level, I actually think the way they get real big things done is to start with empathy that starts with a sentence like, I'm aware that the Cricket World Championships are where you want to spend. We've got this thing going on. Hey, Sanjeev, Ricky, Sally, Pedro, Marcus, how do we get this landed? Versus what I see a lot and I'm not calling any names here, but I'm just saying this is what I see a lot. Again, six different organizations, not just this one, but I've seen it in this one three years. Whereas whoever knows that they have the final say either plays a game of condescending, just having meetings for the sake of meetings, but they know they're going to make the final say at the end anyway, so wasting time, or overforcefulness because they've got the political power at the time, none of which are as interesting to me of having a conversation like grownups grounded in empathy, kindness, understanding, and then trying to thoughtfully try to land two things, not just one. I, I agree with that. And I think having worked in the markets and now global, I think having an appreciation of what they're going through. You know what's going on in Australia? Like um, this place got COVID right now. This place, everyone cares about EDM. This one's like, that's fine, but we're getting our faces beat in by this competitor. This one's like, like, listen, you're talking to a contextual marketer who believes in relevance. So I'm always, if and when, I mean, I'm doing it now, I do tend to skew more towards localization context with global strategy, but not global subjective creativeness, which I do think makes it very, very, very challenging for everybody on this call. And I have compassion for it because, quote unquote, what you do. My big argument is cohesiveness for whom is always my most interesting thing. Like, I appreciate cohesiveness. I'm cohesive. But someone in a suburb of Brazil isn't necessarily going to get over-affected by a piece of creative by somebody in Africa. And so sometimes we have to check our own corporate subconscious in some of these combos as well. I agree. I think it's freedom within the framework, setting the strategy, setting the creative track. And, and I think, I think that's right. And then I, but, but then the question becomes, and you know this, 
I believe the person that has the most power, global in this scenario, has to be empathetic and really look themselves in the mirror and say, if I'm giving freedom within the framework, well, the creative framework is subjective by nature. And am I being a good partner to my teammate here right now? Or am I just trying to impose my creative subjectiveness that I'm excited about? It's not like I'm a bad guy or a gal. I'm just really excited about this positioning or this creative. It's a very, you know, conviction with humility is one of the great mix of ingredients of a wonderful leader. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And Gary, you touched on your energy before, energy and the conviction you have. I believe in sort of the power of energy, both positive energy and negative energy. They're both as powerful as each other and they're both infectious. And I often say to my team and my kids that when you wake up in the morning, you have a choice to make to be an energy giver or an energy sucker. And every day I wake up and and I try to be an energy giver, but the reality is some days I'm flat. So I have to have a coffee or I walk around the office. I manufacture energy because I know that's when I get the best out of myself and the team. I'm interested, how do you stay up? You know, you seem to always be full of energy. I, you know, there's many things there. One, the reason I always seem to be full of energy is if I'm having a very challenging emotional day, it is my obsession to disappear so that it doesn't affect others. Sometimes you don't have the luxury of disappearing, but for me, I don't have sustained negativity. I mean, it starts with gratitude. I agree. Spencer, I'm going to ask you a question now. We're going to get onto the, the metaverse. How can ABI play a more meaningful role in the metaverse? And you know, we were discussing the other day, like, do you think in the future it's real that people are going to be catching up with friends around the world, putting glasses on, putting their Oculus goggles on and joining some cool bars and enjoying our products? Is that going to be real? And if so, how should we be thinking about in this space? I think it will be real, but the way it manifests might change a little bit. I look at technology as being an enabler, right? You're able to talk to people like we're doing this now. We're in all different settings. Two years ago, we would have had every single thing that we do be virtual. And I think with COVID, we've learned to live with it. I think that the metaverse is an extension of that. Right now, when you experience our brands, you're experiencing them in the real world. You go to a bar, you go to a stadium, you go to a restaurant, you get to have them. I don't know if you'll be able to like drink a beer in the metaverse because that's virtual, but could you enjoy it? Could you have the experience? Could you go to a concert that are brought to you by your brands where you buy at home and then you're tuning in or you're catching up with the brand? I think absolutely. I think for us, when we think about Metaverse, so it's going to be a gradual iteration in terms of how our brands come to life there. We're starting really big right now with NFTs. And NFTs, they're collectibles, but they can be wearables. They can be experiences. You can tie them to a lot of different things. And we'll use that to help have a more solidified presence in like what I would call virtual reality or augmented reality or something along those lines. So I think it's going to morph. I think we started the journey. I think it's really important though, as a company, we come in with the right lens because we want to make sure if we're setting ourselves up, Right now, it's a small community, but it's going to be growing like crazy. We need to make sure what's our brand strategy? How are we consistent? How do we reflect the same brand when you go to a bar or when you're going to that digital concert online? So I think that'll be something we learn and do, but it's coming for sure. And I think anyone who questions that to me is someone who also isn't taking notes of what happened in the last 5, 10, 15 years with the advent of social media, the growth of the internet, e-commerce, and then with COVID, I think it's taken things to another level. And Gary, at a broader level, we'd love to just get your thoughts on where you see the metaverse heading and the way big tech are going to play in this space. Like we saw today that Microsoft's going to buy Activision Blizzard for nearly $70 billion as a big bet for them in the metaverse. Everyone's aware of Facebook, uh, Meta, clearly trying to centralize the metaverse through their Oculus VR experience. And people are talking about it being more decentralized and a mix of platforms and apps where Apple's clearly going to play a big role. 
love to get your thoughts on where you see the big tech playing in the future. The stakes are high. For everybody here who's over the age of 43, they have a chance of touching at the beginning of their career, the web one thing. And that web one thing is, there's this thing called the internet. Is it big? Is it a fad? Everybody who's watching right now, if you were the same exact age, same title, everything you are right now, and we just took a time machine, and when it was 1996, 95, 97, everybody on this call underestimated the internet. Everybody. And like, not kind of, grossly. The same exact thing is going to happen with the consumer blockchain. The metaverse, VR, all that, is further away than people think. For example, I'm one of the most prolific and famous NFT collectors in the world. I have not bought a single piece of land in the metaverse. Why? Because I know that that requires VR. NFTs have already happened. Why? Not because of how much has been sold, but because I can go onto Twitter and Instagram right now and see everyone's profile picture has changed. People are using a board ape on Twitter right now, the same reason they buy a Kith hoodie for $800 or a Mercedes or a Rolex. They are social signaling. So what has already happened? NFTs, metaverse is three, six, nine years away from the way I think people are envisioning it. Could be two months away, could be 10 years, but we're still away. Like until you show me 5 million people wearing a VR headset every day and going into that environment, let's like pretend metaverse was 3.0. Right now, we're in 2.5. We're in the middle. The NFT thing is caught on because you can kind of flex it. NFTs are more like social media. I take a picture with a famous person put on social media because I want you to know. I take a picture on vacation because I want you to show you how happy my family is. I show you having dinner at a fancy place to show you how rich I am, how cool I am, how happy I am. This is what humans do, right? And brands that are iconic like Budweiser, they become identity. Harley Davidson becomes identity, right? Nike becomes identity. So we're in a lot of human psychology mode right now, but I think everybody, including me, and I really think I'm at the forefront. It's my third rodeo. I've got the gray hairs to show it. I've been very good at this. And I still can feel myself sitting here right now as a leading pontificator. Even though I say 99% of projects are going to fail because it's internet stocks, I always say this is the biggest thing that's happened since the internet. And it will be true. Here's why. Right now we're in the collectible zone. Collectability is leading. When utility is leading with a touch of collectability, you're going to get into the Stella Chalice. You're going to get into the Hess truck. You're going to get into the Starbucks mugs. The collectible part's going to be the side dish, not the main dish. And access to Tomorrowland or tickets to a Super Bowl or membership club or around the world, not US, beer of the month club in the form of an NFT. Like that's where it's all going. Gary, I think what really resonated with me when you first said that the digital wallet's going to be the new social currency. And I think you're right because it's what people prepared to put their hand in their pocket, actually physically pay for. And Spencer mentioned that it's almost like going to people's homes. You're going to see what they're prepared to pay for in terms of their artwork. Art. And their yeah. The real world is limited. I have a fairly nice acquaintance slash business relationship with you guys. If we get to work together for a little while, it crosses over as you guys probably have with some people. I have with some people. It goes to the next place. I'm even getting goosebumps because it's so interesting to me. It crosses over into friendship. Like you'll actually invite somebody that you do business with, whether it's a coworker, more commonly, but even when you do business across the table, sometimes it crosses into friendship. But the amount of people that are going to come into my home and see what I spend on wine and art and collect and toy, which, TV, whatever, it's so small. Yet the world spends trillions, trillions, 
trillions of dollars buying vases, art, stemware, wine, all to show 97 people, six people, 15 people ever what they have and how cool and rich they are. And this is real talk now. The blockchain is public domain. Nobody can post a photo of their bank account on social media and get away with it. Nobody can take a photo and say, look, I have $17 million in cash. In my Nobody can. But if you watch carefully, that's what people are doing every day, all day in a different way. They can show you the private plane. They can show you the yacht. And, and that's the extremities. They can show you the BMW. They can show you a nice backyard. It's what they're doing. NFTs are going to let people do that at a scale we've never seen. Because not only will you see, for example, I bought a $330,000 skull the other day. It's a very OG project called Crypto Skulls. I think it has a chance of being a very important project. And I bought one for 100 Ethereum, $320,000. I bought as an investment. Whether that investment goes to zero, like many of my startup bets, or it becomes my Facebook or Coinbase, or I've had a lot of good ones. People here, Gary Vee invested in Facebook, Twitter, but like what I did with that skull, people don't realize that I put $34,000 into Twitter and it turned into $7 million. This is the first time I've ever said it public. And the reason I'm even saying it publicly is I'm starting to realize like that's, that's what the world's going to be like. People are going to see when I sell that skull or my grandkids sell that skull. Like, and now it becomes like almost like storytelling of what you bought things for, not just that you own it. There's a layer of human psychology that everyone's misunderstanding. And that was a little storytelling of some of the things you're going to see. And it's going to be cool. Like, not only are you going to have an expensive thing in your home, but people don't know what you paid for it. And did you do well? Did you not do well? Most of my friends who are affluent that like to talk about art, or even my friends who are not, but they bought a $30 sports card and sold it for $100, it's the brag of the goodbye, not even owning the thing. This is now public domain. People are going to go to people's wallets. How well did they do? Or how about this? Andy just left the president of BeFriends. I made him mint World of Women. It was like mint this back in the summer. He pulled a night goddess, the most expensive one. So he paid like 800 bucks. He sold it for 5,000 that day and was like living a dream. They're 70 Ethereum right now. They're $210,000. If that project keeps going the way it's going, one day, let's say it becomes an icon. And I actually think that'll go from 210 to 40,000 and then back to 210 because I think it's going to be internet crash. But stick with me. In 12 years, if that token's traded 13 times, his children one day will be able to see him and be like, Dad, you sold, because it's all domain, it's all there. You sold this. That's cool. Like I sold a Michael Jordan rookie card in 1993 at a sports card show for $900. That happened. That's lost in history. This is the first time I've ever brought that up. But in the blockchain world, it'd be really cool if I could tweet out right now. Could you imagine? Hey, by the way, you think I'm a genius? Look at this stupid thing I did. And like, you know, this is now $600,000. So like, you know, a lot of fun stuff like that is coming. And Spencer, can you just take us through the first drop we did, which was in the Budverse with the Heritage Cans and talk us through what were the learnings from that project? Yeah, I definitely can. I actually think Oppy too, for us, that was the first own drop that we did where we had our own website, we had our own content, we handled cryptocurrency. But I think the story started actually a little bit earlier where we started with a couple partnerships of key projects that were already in the space. And there's really two big ones that I would mention. The first one, our European team did this where a partner was Zed Run. We did it with Stellar Artois. Zed Run's a digital racing game. It's a game in the metaverse, right? You can play, you can bet on it. You can have horses race each other. They created these Stella horses that started to sell really, really quickly. 
that was one really big project that happened this summer. So it was the Zed Run team that made most of the money on that, but a really good proof case for us of how to validate the space and what people wanted. And then we actually jumped on and supported a big artist here in the US. His name was Tom Sachs. Tom Sachs did, basically he launched a rocket factory, which is like these little NFTs of rockets. If you purchase one of the NFTs, you actually received a sculpture, a little bottle rocket that he created. And he's a very famous sculpture artist as well. We saw that, we supported him, we purchased one of the rockets. And that for us, I think really helped validate the space. And I think they saw us as like, wow, these people know what they're doing. They care about the community. They're supporting projects that are there. And then when we decided to launch our own program, we now had a kind of a built-in hype. This community who thought, wow, Budweiser knows what they're doing. They're pretty cool. We purchased the beer.eth, which was like the equivalent of buying beer.com back in 1998, right? It's like we were one of the first movers to go buy a big domain. And with that, we kind of added fuel to the fire. So by the time we were actually selling our heritage project, people thought, oh, we just dropped these images that we were selling. It's actually, it was three, four, five months of work leading up to that, that really made us cool. And then when we dropped, we sold out very, very quickly, right? Within 26 minutes. Basically what we did is we had our Budweiser can. We thought, what's a way that we can make these cool, collectible, just fun to look at? We took different images, different cans over Budweiser's history. We launched 1,936 NFTs, each one representing the year that Budweiser came out with its first ever can, which is the year 1936. We did iterative generative art, basically all different versions. Everything was completely unique. So one holder got something different than the other that gave it some rarity, some value, some personal touch with it. And then basically we use a lot of our archival imagery, our heritage. We sold the power of Budweiser to people. And I think the reason it did really well is because number one, we controlled the supply. Number two, we built an audience ahead of time. Number three, we were leveraging things that people wanted and expected from our brand. And I think we're seeing it up as we're driving significant utility. You're democratizing what Budweiser is. So for us, I think it was really successful. It was the first of many. We're looking to replicate similar strategies across other brands. But I'm excited because I think we're definitely cool. We're definitely a first mover when you look at this from a brand perspective. Yeah, I mean, you'll relate to the game as, a, as an I individual. Mean, way more importantly to me is if you've been reading Twitter and Discord, it is pretty accepted at this point that Budweiser is the brand that gets it. Like, you know, for everybody who's in NFT 001, not even 101, Spence said some things. That they, I was just smiling. He was rocking on some stuff that seems common to him because he's now in the cocoon. But like some of that stuff was like flying over people's heads. We've done a lot of things right in authenticity, crowd building, audience building, the right kind of NFT. And Richard, kudos to you and Pedro, because you were the first two I spoke to back when this was all going down. Like there's something here. And at the time, if you remember from day one, I said, this is big for me because you can't hide in this world like all of you hide in marketing. In this world, Budweiser crushed. And like, the truth is, just like in marketing, it takes real strategy and real nuances, the generative project, doing it right, on ETH, on chain, like just like a lot of things that are very complex. What do you think was the difference there between now the brands that have failed and then Budweiser was a big success? Does it come down to the strategy, the way it was built? Well, what's your thinking there? I think that business is like sports. It comes down to the athletes. Listen, I currently have one of the disproportionate most successful projects by a country mile. I'm an investor, most of the others. Avery has been like trained for months now to do this right. But we're a service provider. At the end of the day, winning is like athletes. This guy on the call with me, you or your macro support, the other guy who I love so much, like the reality is you guys, and you know this, Spence, I would fly in for quick meetings and be like, this is a deal breaker. We can't do this. This will not work. 
And like, what's so lovely about Web3 for me versus marketing is you guys in marketing could just be like, well, you're wrong, Gary. And like, it's just hidden in marketing. Here it's not. And so to that point, there's just no hiding. And I think to be very frank, I think we're really the best in the world at doing this. And I think what I give you guys tremendous credit in is the best clients are the ones that actually know when to get involved, know when to not get involved, know when to touch it, know when not to touch it. Clients always say, we want our agencies to push us and to challenge us. But we on the agency side always know that when you actually bring the stuff that brings the heat, because the scoring doesn't exist internally, which dictates all the behavior of bonuses and rewarding and everything, What's great about NFTs is the scoring is sales. <laughs> and so, Spence, I really haven't even been able to thank you in private. In every session where I thought we were at crossroads, of this is going to be a decision that's going to matter. You've been an incredibly thoughtful partner. You go through the process and we land in a great place. We built a very smart alpha. Great things happen when you do the right thing. It's based on up and coming artists. I don't know if you two know this. You probably definitely know this, Spence, at this point. I don't know if this hit your radar yet, Rich. I didn't get to tell you. One of our artists just got his song chosen for NBA 2K video game, which is going to be billions of impressions. Huge. It has to know, Gary, too. Don't forget that. That's right. So like, you know, we really got some good headwinds. We've got a lot of respect in it. Again, we're doing the things right. The people that bought the Alpha NFT, we're giving one free right away, doing it right. We're right there. And not to mention, let me tell you how NFTs work. Six years from now, one of these rappers could explode and change the whole project. I can literally get an email from one of the three of you, I'm adding Pedro in here, saying, pretty disappointed in this, Gary. Why did it do well? I'm gonna put that in my folder to save because in four years, one of the rappers could become the biggest star in the world, which then makes the whole project explode. That's fascinating. Because with a commercial, a Super Bowl spot, it's in the ether, it's gone. With this strategy, it's on the blockchain in perpetuity that anything can happen which is why I'm so confident in the project. We know every artist we have in this project absolutely has the potential to win a Grammy. And we've done this for a long time, me and Mike Boyd. So we're really excited about it. Yeah, I think, Abi, before we move off this point too, there were a couple artists and a couple people, even when we released the artists publicly, they're like, who are these people? Why should I? Everybody, yeah. And since that, to Gary's point, one that's going to be in one of the biggest games that you can have, and the other one, hosting Saturday Night Live the week before we do the drop. So now people are like, wait, maybe they actually know what they're doing. Yeah. What I like about it too, it's not just investing in NFTs and getting other people involved. We increase our sponsorship, right? Now we have 22 artists that we can work with continuously and we're diversifying the business. You're not just buying beer, you're buying an asset, a collectible. So I think for us, what's exciting is that for the first time, the technology is allowing us to monetize our assets to monetize our brands beyond- It depends if you just come back just for their audience. They, yeah. they don't really know what you're talking about. We jump straight into it without going into it. So Budweiser is supporting 22 emerging hip hop artists. 22 different artists, male and female, that are developing or about to pop within the music space. So they have decent following, some small, some getting very large, but they're basically people that are going to be up and coming. We think up and coming celebrities, maybe not all 22 of them, but a few of them could be massive. So what we basically did is we went into the ground floor and we said, listen, some of them didn't even know what NFTs were. We said, listen, we're Budweiser. We just did this really cool program, right? We're really big first movers in the space. And we think we can offer you a platform that can help make your brand even bigger, more powerful. And you're working with one of the world's iconic brands. So basically we went to them and said, we're going to make your brand bigger. What's the downside for you? You're not going to do your own NFT program. We have the audience. We have the platforms. 
we can feature you. We can put you in our concerts. We put you in our advertising. And I think for them, they were really excited because as being an emerging artist, totally different than being an established artist. You're hungry. You want the visibility. You want the credibility that a big brand can bring. But I think from this, we had a really smart program. And because we're leveraging the technology, I think with that, there will be some really cool things that come out of it. You're very bullish on NFTs. I'd love you to push the team to think outside of the box to think about how can we use this blockchain technology? I mean, you've mentioned to us sponsorship deals, ambassador deals. You might touch on Firefish. It's been a big success. All the way to like, how would we use smart contracts with supply chain? Supply chain's crazy. Being able to verify, wow. That's like, I'll leave that for another day because that's get heady. Here's what I would say, and Spencer touched on it. The thing that immediately can happen is we should not do a single Post Malone, A-Rod, Dwayne Wade, or any of the amazing people around the globe, the coolest cricket player, the best footballer, Mo Salah, if we want to do the Middle East. Like, do not do a deal with an actual celebrity without having a strategic point of view on NFTs. And then again, for the big talk, NFL, FIFA, Olympics, like this is something that has to integrate into our strategy around everything. And then finally, direct to consumer. The perceived value of NFTs can drive enormous offline sales. There are three human beings in the earth who've written books that are nonfiction that sold a million copies in 24 hours. Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, and me. Why? Which is a joke. I'm even, I actually don't even like that. I'm not going to do that then because that's, that's, it's a little bit embarrassing and it's not appropriate. But let me tell you why I stumbled my way into that room. In August, I had a new book coming out and I said, if you buy 12 copies of my new book, 12 and a half, I will send you an NFT. The perceived value of the NFTs are so high, 125,000 people did it. Right. And so, including me, Gary, by the way. Thank you. And did you do what? I mean, and you. And I read the book. The book, the book is, the book is great. And I, and I, and I did make money on the NFT, but I'm holding it. Yeah. So right now, the NFT is selling the worst one you could get for a thousand bucks. It costs you 240 to get the books. And some have gone for $60,000 free dropped if you bought $240 worth of books. So again, the US is a very unique market, but in markets where we're selling direct to consumer, the idea that in Mexico, we could do something like if you buy this subscription, yearly subscription of Corona for 900, you know, whatever, we will drop you this World Cup NFT. I think everyone will be very surprised how often that happens in the future. And the last, very last question for each. So Spencer, there's obviously a lot of concerns around NFTs when you listen to in the Discord. They talk about the fraud. There's people talking about money laundry. There's environmental concerns. For the people listening, what are we doing as a company to mitigate against those risks? And Gary might want to elaborate on how he's sort of looking to protect his clients in that space as well. Okay, I was going to say, I think the first thing, Oppie, is we have to tread cautiously. There are a lot of risks associated with putting NFTs out there because they're out there forever, right? And there is fraud. There is money that happens with cryptocurrency. That doesn't mean with NFTs, right? But I think from us, the first thing we did is we put together a cross-functional team working with legal, finance, treasury, procurement, the whole gamut. And basically, we kind of systematically put out what are all the issues that we could face and we started tackling them one by one. Now, I think we had great consultants helping us with this with Gary's team. We didn't know anything about the space and his team did and they helped advise us to key moves that we should be making. We really worked across functions collaboratively and I think the key thing for us is we got the right partners. So we're using the right website vendor. We're using the right cryptocurrency provider. We're using the right company to help us mint and create the assets themselves. 
that then protect us. And we now have the same checks and balances that we'd want with any of our other programs or any of our sales sites. You mentioned the carbon emissions, everything else. We are basically using revenue from it to purchase carbon offsets. So for us, we're basically using the program to help fund all the relief that we'd want to do around it, which I think for us is very helpful so that we can keep our sustainability goals, everything else we promise as a company. Gary, a lot of people say that this is still very niche. Do you think it's going to get to the mainstream and what's going to enable that tipping point? And then we'll wrap it up. It's niche. It will go to the mainstream because all technology does. Many people here said they would never have a TikTok. They do now. They'll never have an Instagram or Facebook. They do now. They'll never have a smartphone. They do now. You know how many people here, Hoppy, love their BlackBerry and said they'd never have an iPhone? Yeah. If you got, if you got some real OGs in here, they said they'd never have a phone. They'll never have a phone, period. Ever. There's people that have been around this company long enough that they cared about their beeper. You know, like, not the internet. I'll never have a website. I'll never do email. All people do is say no, no, no. And then they succumb because technology is undefeated. I believe the tipping point will be ticketing. I believe that every ticket to every event will be an NFT within the decade. And I think much like QR codes at menus right now have everybody feeling comfortable with QR codes because of COVID, ironically, sped up the process. There'll be something like that, like the Super Bowl or the World Cup or the entire Major League Baseball goes to NFT ticketing. Something will happen that's scaled enough that gets enough people in. Fantastic. I just want to thank you, Gary. Thanks, Spencer, for making the time. To everyone listening, if you've got any questions about the metaverse or NFTs, Spencer is the man and he's got a good team with Avery from Vayner NFT and their team behind supporting us. So please reach out with any questions. And thanks again, Gary. And thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Appy. Thanks, Gary. Thank Great you. Thank you. Bye, Spencer. Bye, Gary. Well, there you have it from Gary himself. Budweiser is the brand that gets it. If you were confused before, you should be really excited now. Like the internet before it, the metaverse is already here, but this is just the beginning and the future is promising. That just leaves me to say a very big thank you to Richard Oppie, Vice President of Global Brands, Spencer Gordon, Vice President of Digital and Draftline at Anheuser-Busch, and of course, Gary Vaynerchuk, Chairman of VaynerX, for being featured on our podcast. And thanks to our listeners. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ab-imbev.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us. And if you think others will enjoy it too, please share. We are AB InBev. This is Elise Puma from the AB InBev legal team. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by AB InBev solely for informational purposes and is general in nature. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of AB InBev, are not necessarily those of AB InBev and may not be current. AB InBev does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the content contained in this podcast, nor does AB InBev offer any sort of legal, financial, or other advice in the podcast content. Any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Certain of the statements may have been forward-looking in nature and based on current expectations and views of future events and developments of the speakers, and are naturally subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. AB InBev does not undertake any obligation to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast.